Thank you, worship team. This is my first time hearing the worship team live. So it's great to be back. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, my family and I, we were away for a few months, and now it's great to be back. Uh, we miss you. We love this church. Even though we were away, we still pray for you. So thank you uh, for having us here. We look forward to reconnect with all of you. Now, I love this church, and we pray that God will continue to strengthen you to fulfill the Great Commission. Uh, we love this church. We love how it is so focused on the Great Commission. The mission of this church is based on the Great Commission. We endeavor to reach out. Uh, we endeavor to live out, to live fully, full obedience to the Lord, and to reach out to make disciples who will be fully committed to the Lord, and that is based on the Great Commission. Now, the Great Commission is about building God's kingdom, and we build God's kingdom by sharing the gospel with non-believers, and when they become believers, when they accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, they become believers, and then we baptize them. This is building God's kingdom because these converted sinners are now qualified to enter God's kingdom. We do not advance God's kingdom by taking over social institutions or by legislating moral laws from chambers of governments. I'm not saying that Christians cannot be involved in government. We can and we should. We should advocate our right to access the public square. But we do not build God's kingdom by taking over social institutions. We build God's kingdom by sharing the gospel, converting people so that they are qualified to enter God's kingdom. When Jesus returns, they can enter into his kingdom. But God's desire for believers to build his kingdom did not start with the Great Commission in the New Testament. From the very beginning in the Bible, it has always been God's desire for all believers in all ages to build his kingdom. This morning, I want us to see this desire of God from the very beginning in Genesis 12. From Genesis 12, I pray that you will see the importance of God's calling to every believer to build his eternal kingdom. And I pray that you will get more serious about partnering with God to fulfill his mission. And I pray also that you will see what kind of kingdom builder God wants us to be. So please turn your Bible to Genesis 12. Uh, before we begin, let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you for your mercy, your love, and your faithfulness. We know that there's many troubles in this world. But as your love, your word, and your spirit comforts us. Help us now set our minds in eternal things, to things that are unseen. Help us to walk by faith, not by sight. Prepare our hearts to listen to your word, to be renewed, to be encouraged, to be refreshed by your love and your word and your comfort and your faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Now before we read this chapter let me give you the context of Genesis 12. When God created the whole world in Genesis 1, his original plan was to rule the whole world, rule his kingdom on earth through mankind. Mankind was supposed to be God's co-rulers on earth, and we were supposed to manage his world according to God's ways and his laws. And God's first kingdom on earth was Eden. And mankind's job was to Expand Eden to cover the whole earth so that the whole world will be a paradise just like Eden. And we know that Eden was God's first kingdom for many reasons. And one of the reasons is because in the end of the Bible, in Genesis 21 to 20, the new heaven and the new earth, which is the consummation of God's kingdom, is fashioned just like Eden. Both have a river and a tree of life. Let's read Revelation 22, verse 1 to 2. It says, Then the angel showed me, that is the apostle John, 
The river of the water of life, he's describing the new heaven and new earth. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. So Eden was God's first kingdom on earth. But in Genesis 3, Satan caused mankind to fall into sin, destruction, and rebellion. And the whole thing just unraveled. God's kingdom is destroyed. And ever since the fall, God has been on a mission to restore and reclaim his kingdom on earth. He's on a mission to fulfill his original mission, his original plan for mankind. And he's on a mission to redeem a group of people who will live on his restored world. And that is a new heaven and new earth. And the rest of the Bible is about how God will accomplish his mission. And as he accomplished his mission, he's going to reveal himself and glorify himself. That is the whole purpose of the Bible. That is the whole point of the Bible. It's about God on a mission. Now, after the fall, it seemed like Satan was winning. The whole world was filled with evil, and violent people were rebelling against God. He was, they were ruining God's earth. It seemed like no one was worshiping God. But Satan was not winning. God was winning because he kept saving people. There was always a remnant of God worshiping God, and his plan of redemption continued to move forward. God was winning. God was saving a remnant. He saved Adam and Eve. They eventually repented of their sins and believed in the coming Messiah. In Genesis 4, verse 25 to 26, God saved Sif. And then there became a large remnant of people who started to worship God. In Genesis 6, even when the whole world was evil and God had to send a flood to cleanse the whole earth, even then, God redeemed Noah and his family, and they continued to worship God. And then in Genesis 11, the whole world was united in rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. But God had confused the language and dispersed them. And even though the whole world seemed so hopelessly stuck in sin and judgment, God gave a ray of hope to the world in Genesis 12 by calling Abram. You see, God was still winning. In Genesis 12, God called Abram to salvation and commissioned him to build God's kingdom in Canaan. God is faithful to fulfill his mission, and no one is able to stop him. This is what Genesis 12 is about. It's about God promising to use Abram to build his kingdom and how God protects his promises. Let us read Genesis 12. And I'm reading from the ESV. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had acquired, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, at, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Nagath. 
Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, female donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? What did you say? She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now in verses 1 to 9, God called Abram to advance his kingdom. But before God called him to build his kingdom, God first called him to repentance. This is in verse 1. God commanded Abram to leave his country from his relatives. And at the time of that calling, Abram was in Haran, but he was born in the city of Ur. Both Haran and Ur were in the land of Chaldeans. You can see that on the map. And both of them are in the land of the Tower of Babel. Chaldea, Chaldeans is, is in the land of Babel. It's in present-day Iraq. And the land of Babel is another word for the land of Babylon. In Hebrew, there's only one word for both Babel and Babylon. The word Babel or Babel. So he is from the land of rebellion and idolatry, the land of the Tower of Babel. And this land is full of rebellion and violence and hatred toward God. When God called Abram to leave his homeland, it was a call to, re to repent from the, his idolatry, a call to leave the kingdom of darkness, to enter the kingdom of light. Now, today, God continues to call unbelievers out of idolatry and rebellion. The difference is that unbelievers now don't have to leave the land, but they still need to leave the idolatry and rebellion of the land. And after God called Abram to repentance, God then promised to bless Abram so that he would build God's kingdom. God blessed Abram by giving him four promises. And these promises are related to God's kingdom program. God's going to use these promises to fulfill his mission. And the first promise to Abram is to make him into a great nation in Canaan. This is in verse 2. And this is an amazing promise because in Genesis 11.30, it says that Abram's wife Sarai was barren. And God then just promised a person, a, a child, by a whole nation. This is really amazing because Abram and Sarai were very old. He was 75 years old. And Sarai was about 66 years old. And this is, this is just an amazing, amazing promise. God did not just promise children, but a nation with many descendants. And this is the nation of Israel. Israel will become God's new Eden, his new kingdom on earth. The Jews were supposed to advance God's kingdom by telling other nations about God and his message of his kingdom. This is made clear throughout the Old Testament, especially in Exodus 19, verse 6. It says that Israel is supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So Israel is also a 
important nation, not just because they're going to be God's messengers, but because all of Israel will become the Messiah who will accomplish God's mission. So this is God's first promise to him. Now the second promise is to make him, to make his name great. This is also in verse 2. And this will be fulfilled later in verse 17 when God made Abram into a spiritual father of multitude of nations and changed his name to Abraham. Abraham, Abraham means father of multitude. Abraham will become a great example of faith and obedience to all believers in all ages. God promised to make him famous for his faith and obedience. Now, fame is not to be pursued by humans like the people at the Tower of Babel. That's why they built that tower. Greatness is bestowed by God graciously. Our job is to have faith and obedience, not to chase after fame. To seek fame is prideful, and God hates that. God humbles the proud. We ought to just pursue faith and love and obedience. God gave to Abram fame because of his kingdom purpose. And ultimately, at the end, it is God who will get the glory. So this is God's second promise to him. And the third promise is to give him unconditional physical protection to Abram. This is in verse 3. God says to him, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, which includes revile or hurting him. It says, I will curse. This was unconditional physical protection for Abram because he was going to sojourn in a foreign land. He needs physical protection. This promise is only applicable to Abram and all his descendants in the line of the Messiah, including the Messiah himself. It is not applicable to all of his descendants. It is not applicable to all Jewish people, and it is not applicable to Christians, to believers. This promise was given to Jacob in Genesis 27-29. It was not given to Esau. Even though he was a descendant of Abram, he did not get it. He cried for that blessing, but God did not give that blessing to him. And this promise was later on given to the Messiah himself in Numbers 24-9 when the Messiah was prophesied. And then later on in Psalm 91, it explains in more detail how this promise is applied to the Messiah. This is why Satan used this psalm to tempt Jesus in Matthew 4. Jesus died not because God failed to protect him, but he was willing to die for our sins. Psalm 91 is not for all Christians. God does not promise unconditional physical protection for us not even if we have the greatest faith in the world. Christians can die from COVID, and we can even die from persecution, like many believers in the Middle East. I know many Christian pastors in Indonesia try to use Psalm 91 to teach that if Christians just have enough faith, they, can, they will never get COVID. They will quote Psalm 91, 6, saying that no pestilence, which means no plagues or no diseases, no COVID will befall you. But many of these pastors die from COVID. Many Christians die. So what are we going to say? Are we going to say that God failed his promise? Or are we going to say that those people never have faith, even those faithful pastors? Okay. It's, God has not failed. It's not due to our unfaithfulness. It's due to misinterpretation and misapplication of the Old Testament. God does not promise unconditional physical protection to believers, even if we have the greatest faith in the world. Now, don't be discouraged. I know when I tell believers, hey, this doesn't apply to us, 
people get discouraged. Like, oh, you mean God doesn't care about me? He's not going to help me? No, that's not, the, that's not it. God, even though he does not promise unconditional physical protection from us, he does promise to give grace to us. He promised to be with us forever, always, to the end of the age. This is in Matthew 28, 20. He says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is always with us to help us in, the, in time of trouble. We can seek him. We can cry out to him when we have COVID, when we have difficulties. But God's grace is going to look differently for different people in different situations. Some Christians won't get COVID. Some Christians may get COVID, and God's grace is going to get them through. And some people will get COVID and die. And God's grace is, grace is still there because, especially for older people, it's good to see the Lord. When we die, we, it's good to see the Lord. We have to trust in his plan. We're not meant to live here forever anyways. Our home is in the eternal heaven and earth, and that will come down too to earth when Jesus returns. So be, be encouraged. God's grace is still with us, even though he does not promise unconditional physical protection for us. And also be encouraged. Even though God does not promise unconditional physical protection to us, he does promise unconditional spiritual protection for all Christians. Once a person truly puts his or her faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, that person becomes a child of God and is loved by God unconditionally and is protected by God unconditionally. God will never reject the person, and even if the person sins, God will discipline the person. And this is taught throughout in the New Testament. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am assured of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So Christians, we have unconditional protection spiritually, so be encouraged by that. The fourth promise to Abraham is to use Abraham to bless all the nations, all the families on earth. God will use Abraham to bless the world because the Messiah will come from his bloodline. In him is the Messiah. And the blessing of the whole world will be completely accomplished when Jesus returns and rules the world and bless the world. But this promise has already been partially fulfilled when Jesus came the first time to die on the cross for believers' sins so that we are qualified to enter into his kingdom when he returns. This is clear in the New Testament. Galatians 3.8 says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now these four promises that God gave to Abram are called by, uh, by theologians as the Abrahamic Covenant. God will fulfill his mission by fulfilling his covenant with Abraham. And later on, God will also make many other covenants with other people, and he will fulfill his mission by fulfilling these covenants. Now, God gave Abraham all these amazing promises, but these promises were based purely on God's sovereign grace. It was not based on Abram's goodness or his talent. Abram was an unworthy sinner from the very beginning. He was from the Tower of Babel. He was from a land of idolaters. He was a worshiper of idols. And later on, we will see that Abram will distrust God and disobey God. He even tried to sacrifice his wife to protect himself. He was 
just an unworthy sinner like all of us, plagued with doubts, sins, and weaknesses. God elected and called Abram because, as Ephesians 1.6 says, is purely according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And God also graciously, graciously elected us and called us to accomplish his mission for the praise of his glorious grace. We are all unworthy sinners. Now, after Abram left his country and obeyed, Abram didn't know how the details of God's plan would pan out, but he simply trusted God. And this was not easy obedience. It required tremendous sacrifice. First, Abram was 75 years old, and Sarai was barren. But God promised to turn them into a great nation. This required Abram to trust God and not in his circumstances. And second, by leaving Haran, he had to forsake his inheritance from his father. He couldn't wait for his father to pass away and inherit his inheritance. So this called for financial sacrifice. And third, Abram had to sacrifice the comfort and safety of his hometown to go to a new place. He was old and it was, it was difficult for old people to travel. He had to travel about 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers to get to Canaan from Babylon. Traveling was not easy back then. Traveling is very, very easy for us now. We have highways and climate-controlled cars. The distance of 1,600 kilometers is about a round trip from Jakarta to Surabaya. I could do that in one day if I really want to. But back then, they didn't have cars and highways. Abraham traveled by walking and using animals, tracking through mountains, valleys, wading through rivers, and walking in the heat of the day, traveling in the cold of the night. It was a very rough, rough journey. And on top of that, he was in constant danger of bandits. You know, it took Ezra described about four months to travel from Babylon to Canaan to Israel. So it probably took Abram about four months too. Now imagine you're 75 years old and your wife is barren, but God called you to pack up all your stuff, leave your inheritance, and travel for four months with your cattle through mountains and valleys. And when you get there, you don't even know how God's plan is going to unfold. So there's a lot of risks and uncertainties. Now, will you do it? If God called you, will you obey him? Would it be easy for you? I know it would not be easy for me. So why did Abram make big sacrifices to obey What does it take for a person to do hard things, to make tremendous sacrifices? The Bible tells us it requires great faith and also great love for God. And this is how Abram was able to obey this very difficult command. Hebrews 11, 8 to 10 states, By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. See, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram obeyed, because he had great faith in God's word, in his promise. So great obedience comes from great faith. If you want to increase your obedience, you must increase your faith first. But it did not just take great faith. It also 
took great love for God and his kingdom. Abram made sacrifices because his love for God and his kingdom was far greater than any pleasure that this broken world could ever offer him. Hebrews 11, 15 to 16 says, If they, this is referring to the patriarchs, including Abraham, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire, they love, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. See, Abram desired, he loved a better world. That is why he made the sacrifice and did not turn back. He desired an eternal kingdom where citizens of that kingdom truly love God and one another, where there is perfect righteousness in this kingdom. That is why he persevered and did not turn back. Now, brothers and sisters, God has called us to advance his kingdom just like Abraham. If we want to be effective kingdom builders for God, we must have the same faith and the same love as Abraham. We must have great faith in God's word and his promises. Jesus will return, that is his promise, and he will establish his kingdom on earth and we will be in it. If we have this per eternal perspective, then we will have great obedience like Abraham. And if we... It, we must also not just have great faith, but we also must have great love for God and His kingdom. We must continue to fan the flame of our love for Him and His kingdom. Do not be deceived by the temporary pleasures of this broken world and turn back. Do not let the pursuit of wealth, comfort, and fame turn you back from building God's kingdom. You must live for God's kingdom and devote yourself for, to him. Use your job, your wealth, your time, your resources, your relationships to build his kingdom. Live for him and his kingdom, not for you and your kingdom. Now, it, took everything, it looked like everything was going so well in chapter 12 in the beginning. Verse 5 says, Abram obeyed. He arrived in the promised land. He was worshiping God and was faithful to God. And God even affirmed his promises, reaffirmed his promises to Abram. And it looked like God would fulfill his promises to Abram soon. But not long after arriving in Canaan, Abram experienced a severe trial. There was a severe famine in the land. Now, Abram experiences severe trial because all kingdom builders on this, in this broken world will experience trials, including us. 1 Peter 4, verse 6, uh, 12 says, Behold, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You see, all kingdom builders will be tested. We will face trials in this broken world, and God will allow it. He will test all of us, and he uses these tests to grow our faith and our love for him. This is why Abram experienced this severe trial. Now, this famine must have been so disappointing and ironic to him. First, when he arrived in the land, he found out that the Canaanites were there, so he had to wait. He couldn't possess the land right away. He had to wait, so that must have been very disappointing. And it would be so ironic to him because he left the fertile land of Babylonia, Babylon, which is the fertile land of Mesopotamia, and came to a land that, that has famine. There's drought there. So that must be so ironic to him. His faith was under attack. He must have been thinking, God, what kind of kingdom are you giving me? This is not what I expected. 
I'm experiencing a famine here. Why is this happening? So his faith was under attack. And so how well did Abram fare in this trial? Very, very badly. God gave him four promises, and he doubted all four promises and ruined all four promises. His faith buckled under pressure, but despite, despite his failures, God protected all his four promises. And this is what verses 10 and 20 is about. Now, first, God promised to make him into a great nation in the promised land. But he left the promised land and went to Egypt. And this was rebellion against God. In the Old Testament, leaving the promised land is always a sign of disbelief and rebellion against God. Psalm 37, 3 says that even if there's trouble in the land, Old Testament believers must trust in God, tough it out, and not leave the land. The context of Psalm 37 is trouble in the land, but the psalmist encouraged Old Testament believers to trust in the Lord. This is verse 3. Do good and dwell in the land, right? Don't leave the land. Dwell in the land and not leave and befriend faithfulness. Because God's promised land is associated with his authority, his blessing, blessings, and his kingdom. To leave the promised land is to leave his authority and his blessings. Now, Old Testament believers must have special permission to leave the, Old, the promised land. This is why, this is why uh, Jacob hesitated to go down to Egypt when his son Joseph asked him to leave. This is why in Genesis 46, God had to give him a special permission in a special vision to go down to Egypt. But Abram did not have special permission from God. And he left anyways. So that was rebelling against God's promise. Second, things got even worse when Abram started to doubt God's promise of unconditional physical protection for him. Remember, God said, whoever curses you, dishonors you, I will curse. But instead of believing in this promise, God, uh, uh, Abram doubted God. And his doubt led to fear, and fear led to even more sins. Verse 11 to 12 says, he started to be fearful and thought that the Egyptians would kill him for his wife. Now, whether that Concern is valid or not is not important. What is important is that he doubted God's promise. And because he doubted God's promise to protect him, now he's going to protect himself by devising an evil scheme. He told his wife, Sarah, to lie about the relationship. He told her, don't tell other people that I am your husband. Tell other people that I am your brother. Because he was fearful that other people will kill him for her. Now, ladies, imagine you, uh, Sarai. What will you be thinking in your head for those of you who are married? Right? Will you be thinking, what kind of man did I marry? <laughs> you know, he is not willing to sacrifice, put down his life for me as Ephesians 5 commands, but he's willing to train me to protect himself. Abraham's love was very small during this trial. He was very sinful in this moment of weakness. And that's the whole point. The whole point is telling us he's unworthy of God's blessings, his promises. God called him purely based on his sovereign grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. And all of us are like that. None of us deserve any blessing from God. It is for his grace, for his purpose. Now this scheme by Abram sounded really good to him at the time. He thought he was going to be safe by lying, but it was a horrible scheme. His plan involved deception. And this deception ruined his name. Instead of making his name great, he's ruining his name 
Now he's ruining God's third promise to him is to make his name great. And also, he's ruining God's fourth promise to him because his action endangered God's promise to use Abram to bless the whole world. If there's no Sarai, then there's no Messiah. If there's no Messiah, there's no salvation for the world, blessing for the world. So he's ruining God's full promise to him. So this is a horrible, terrible plan. He should have trusted God and be honest. Honesty is the best policy. And his lack of faith resulted in the horrible consequence of the Egyptians taking his wife away to Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh gave him riches in exchange for his wife. And this is horrible. He gained temporary material wealth, but he was in danger of losing his wife forever, and he was in danger of losing God's eternal blessing on him and all his descendants. It was a horrible plan. But the good news is that God intervened Abram's sins and protected his promises to Abram for the sake of God's own glory and honor. You see, these four promises to Abram, they were conditional upon Abram's obedience to leave his land and come to Canaan. And once Abram obeyed and came to Canaan, these four promises became unconditional. Unconditional. God obligated himself to fulfill these four promises no matter what. And since God cares a lot about his honor, his character never changes. He never lies. He never fails to keep his promises, not even one small one. So God intervened and protected his promises. In verse 17, God sent plagues on Pharaoh so that Pharaoh let go of Abram and Sarai. And here's the irony. Abram was supposed to be a blessing to the world. That's God's fourth promise to him. But because of his doubt, scheming, he brought suffering and plagues on the Egyptians. He was ruining, again, God's fourth promise. Verse 18, Pharaoh directly put the blame on Abram, not on God, but on Abram. He says, what is this that you have done to me? It's your fault. So instead of bringing a blessing to the world, Abram brought suffering and plagues on the world. He was ruining God's fourth promise to him. Now he failed miserably when he encountered his first difficulty in the land. God gave him four promises and he doubted and ruined all four promises. And the worst thing about this whole ordeal is that he attacked God's character and power. He was thinking, you know, maybe God is not trustworthy enough. Maybe he's not powerful enough. And these doubts attack God's reputation and honor. He was dishonoring God. And this was very sinful. But even though he failed, the bright side is that this is just the beginning of his journey of faith. It's not the end. In the following chapters, we will see how God will grow his faith and he will become mature, and God will fulfill his promise to him and make his name great. He will become a great example of faith and obedience to all believers in all ages. Now, this story of Abram is very applicable to our lives. Not everything is applicable, as we mentioned. God did not promise to make us into a great nation, or to give us unconditional physical protection, or to make our name famous, or to have the Messiah to come from our bloodline. But God's promise to Abram have many similarities to believers. Not everything is the same to New Testament believers, but there are a lot of similarities and lessons that we can learn from Genesis 12. And the first and most important lesson we must see is that God is completely sovereign and trustworthy. 
He will always fulfill His promises. He will complete His mission. He will rescue and bless the world and deliver the world from Satan. God's great character and power never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And no one can stop God from achieving His plans and promises. Not Satan, not unbelievers, and not even believers who sin at times. Our God is an awesome, sovereign God who rules the world, and He always protects His promises. So we could trust in Him with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. The world may seem to be out of control right now with COVID and the war, but God is in total control, and He will complete His mission. And we can trust in Him and continue to be on mission with Him. And the second lesson that we can learn from this is that God is calling all believers to join Him to build His kingdom, just like Abram. God's mission should be our mission. Now, we are not called to build God's kingdom like Abram by going into uh, the promised land and establish the nation of Israel and making disciples in the context of Israel. But we are called to build God's kingdom by obeying the Great Commission in the context of God's church. Abram's mission was local, confined in the land of Canaan. But the mission of Christians is global. We start locally in a local church, but our mission is to take the saving message of the kingdom to the ends of the world. Every Christian needs to do his or her part in fulfilling the Great Commission in a local church. The Great Commission is not just for missionaries or super Christians. It's for all believers. We could be part of that. God's calling all of us to do that. And we build God's kingdom by proclaiming the gospel and saving people. And that's exactly what Abram did. He shared the message of the kingdom to his relatives and even to his employees, his servants. That's why Lot, his nephew, believed and went with him to the promised land. And many of his servants also believed and they received the sign of circumcision in Genesis uh, uh, 17, which is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. That's how Abram advanced his kingdom, God's kingdom. And that is how we are to advance God's kingdom, by sharing the gospel so that they will believe and be qualified to enter into God's kingdom. And we also do this by praying and supporting missionaries, workers who will take the gospel to the ends of the earth. God's mission should be our mission. Now, the third lesson that we need to learn is that God is not looking for perfect, talented, accomplished people to build his kingdom. He's looking for humble and nobodies like Abraham. He's looking for people who have faith, love, and obedience like Abram. Now, Abram was a nobody and not a, not a big achiever. All he did was to share the gospel, share the message of the kingdom in Canaan and room around in Canaan for 100 years and had the promised child, Isaac. That's all he did, pretty much. Not much of an accomplishment according to the world standard. So why did God call a nobody? You know, from a worldly perspective, you think God would call a big shot. You know, after all, this was an important project. God's whole redemptive plan is, rest, is resting on this nobody, Abram. Now, according to worldly perspective, you think God would cause a great military leader like Nimrod in Genesis 11, uh, Genesis 10, excuse me. He was the world's first great empire builder. He built Nineveh and Babylon. Now, why God didn't call a person like that or a person like 
Alexander the Great or a great philosopher or politician, why does God not call these people? Why did God call a nobody like Abraham? It's because he's not looking for talented and accomplished people who want to run their own lives, who are prideful and rebellious. He's looking for nobodies who are humble and who have faith, love, and obedience. Now, Abraham's faith and love and obedience may not seem to be much to the world, but it was, it was earth-shattering. He was doing things that were epic and revolutionary. He was turning the world upside down by his faith, love, and obedience. This is because that's the person that God wants to use to build his kingdom. And God can work through weak people like these to build his great kingdom. So if we want to be great kingdom builders, we must pursue faith, love, and obedience like Abram. That should be our first priority. We can never sacrifice these character traits to accomplish tasks. Of course, accomplishing tasks is important, but if you don't have faith, love, and obedience, no matter how accomplished you are, you are not God's kingdom builder. And in Abraham, we see that God is not looking for perfect people who never sins. They don't exist. God is looking for humble and imperfect people. And when we sin and fail, we need to be thankful for God's forgiveness and protection in the gospel. Abraham sinned, but God forgave him and protected him. Later on, he repented of his sin and returned to the promised land. So we must do the same. When we sin, God promised in the New Testament to forgive our sins in Jesus. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, when we sin, we ought to rest in the forgiveness and protection that we have in Jesus. We must not rest in our accomplishments or our good deeds. We must completely rest in the perfect atonement of Christ. And as we keep resting in Jesus, we are to be thankful. And then translate that thankfulness to prayer and action. We are to pray that God will give us power to obey Him and then work hard to obey Him. And if you do this, God will use you mightily to build his kingdom just like Abram. May God continue to strengthen you all to fulfill the Great Commission. And may God continue to use this church to be light and salt in this city and beyond. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are a faithful, sovereign God who will fulfill your mission. We could trust in you. Thank you that you have called Humble, nobodies like us. Thank you that we have protection in the gospel. May we desire, may we be thankful to be on a mission with you. May you bless this church, all the believers and all the brothers and sisters to strengthen them to fulfill the great commission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.